God's word out, open it with me. Our first text today is going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but I have a little bit of an introduction. There's a question that I have this morning that I wanted to ask you guys just to think about. And the question is this, why is humanity so infatuated with death? Think about that. Death, we're going to talk about death today, and believe it or not, the sermon today is going to be exceptionally encouraging but we are going to talk about death. Death is a certain, but entirely unnatural event for all people, right? There's only two things we know that we have to do in this life, right? What are they? Die and what? Pay taxes. All right, I know I've said that a couple times. That's exactly it. You know, the reality is we were not created to die. Did you know that? We weren't created to die. God, in fact, created mankind to live forever in the Garden of Eden, fellowshipping with one another and with God the Father in perfect unity. God created Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden. He gave them the job of keeping the garden, and they walked with God in in perfect unity. Their relationship with Him was perfect, and life was perfect. Then Adam and Eve sinned. God gave them the command not to eat from one tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, you must not eat from that tree. And instead of obeying him, they did. They sinned. And death reigned from that point on over all of humanity. And since that day, death has infiltrated our hearts, our minds, and our culture. And now today we live in what I've called a death culture. And I want to define that for you. Because I, I made that word, that phrase up. Death culture, which I'll talk about throughout this sermon, is the ingrained belief and practice of mankind to turn away from the will of God, which leads to death, And to turn to our own will. The will of God leads to joy and life and good things for us. But when we turn away from the will of God and and turn toward sin, that leads to worldliness, fleshly desires. And the consequence of all of that is death. And so the culture in which we live today is a death culture. I think of Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which says, The wages of sin is what? Death. The consequence of sin is death. Both physical death and spiritual death, which is separation from God, our Father. But that verse doesn't end there, does it? For the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life. That's the rest of Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, and that's the culture we live in today. That's the reality of our existence today. But the gift of God is eternal life. By God's grace, however, within this death culture, we have a bright, burning hope. It shines like a bright, white fire in the deepest, darkest cave. The bright, 
burning hope for humanity, shining in the darkness of our death culture, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God became man and dwelled among us. That God-man, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, perfectly fulfills God's law, God's will for all people. Never once did he sin against him. That man, that God-man, Jesus Christ, gave his life as a sacrifice on the cross. While he was on that cross, he received the wrath of God for your sins and for mine. His blood was shed on that cross as a covering, as an atonement for the sins of the world. He died on the cross and he was buried in the ground. And on the third day, hallelujah, he rose again. Back to life, conquering death and sin and Satan and his hold over man. And now we have this almost unbelievable offering from our Father God that if we repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, that we will be saved. We will be born again. We will be reconciled with God and adopted into His family. Jesus takes us from the darkness of death that reigns in our culture and into the marvelous light of life that awaits all believers in heaven. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We've seen the light and we've been saved from our sin by the Lord Jesus Christ. But we remain in this death culture for God's glory so that others may also hear the gospel and see the light and be taken from darkness to life. While we remain in this culture faithfully fulfilling the mission that Jesus has left us to do on this planet, we're left with a, a question that I want to answer today. How do I live like Jesus in this death culture? How do I live like Jesus in the midst of sin and suffering and brokenness? And I believe that Scripture answers that question for us, and I want to answer sort of two sub-questions in my sermon today. The first one is, what is the death culture? What is that? Where do I see that at work in this community? And second, which shepherd do you follow? And so let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. We're going to answer that question, what is the death culture? Would you believe that 2,000 years ago, the Lord inspired the Apostle Paul to write a letter to a young pastor named Timothy? And in that letter, Paul describes to Timothy what will take place on this planet in the last days. He also mentions it in 1 Timothy as well as uh, the New Testament book of Romans chapter 1. In all three of those passages, Paul writes to the church to tell them, this is what it's going to be like in your culture. And unfortunately, this is also what will happen inside of your churches. This particular text that 
Paul writes to Timothy, describes some ungodly leaders that will infiltrate the church. But he also describes the culture in which we live. This death culture. Look at the text with me, 2 Timothy, beginning in verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So when will this happen? When, when will our culture shape, be shaped into that kind of behavior? Well, Paul says in the last days. And what are the last days? The last days, as defined in Scripture, is a time from when Jesus ascended to be at the right hand of Father. That takes place in Acts chapter 1. So that already took place. And then the last days end when Jesus comes back and judges the earth and recreates it into the new heavens and the new earth. So that will happen in the future. So guess what? We're in the last days. That's now. That's when we're living right now. So this describes the time in which we live today. Now the key attribute from which all the others spring, we just saw a list of, of the way people will behave in the last days. The key attribute from which all the others spring is the phrase, lovers or lover of self. That's actually one single Greek word. Um, that's philautus. Philautus is the Greek word for lover of self, and, and that's exactly what it means. It means selfish love. It means self-centered love. There's actually a word for that in the Greek language. It's philautus. Now, who are we supposed to love? That's the question we need to answer. In the last days, mankind will be identified by the way that we are infatuated with ourselves. But that's not the way God created us, is it? In fact, we find out in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is with his disciples as well as, well as with several other um, categories of religious leaders. And they came to him, and they were trying to kind of catch him with the, the local theological debate of the times. And they would approach uh, rabbis and leaders and say, you know, what, what is the most important commandment? And they had by that time over 613 commands that a, a good Jew must fulfill. And so they came to Jesus and asked him the same question. What is the, the most important commandment? Look at and, and just listen. Matthew 22, beginning verse 36 says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the most important thing that any, anyone could do? Jesus answers, verse 37, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. This is the single most important thing that you could do on this planet is to love God. To love God above everyone and everything else. Love God. Verse 39, Jesus says, he even gives, gives them some bonus teaching, right? The second command, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So first and most importantly, love God. And second, love other people with the same degree of intensity with which you love yourself. Now, what I find missing from this command is my love for myself. 
So when they came to Jesus and said, what's the most important commandment? Uh, Jesus didn't say, you should love yourself more than anybody else, did he? We're vacant from that list. Love God, love others. We're not on the list. One scholar writes, when the center of gravity in an individual shifts from God to self, a plethora of sins spring up. And so what Paul now writes to Timothy is because of mankind's love for himself in these last days, because mankind and humanity has gotten so infatuated with ourselves, this is how we're going to behave. Self-love leads to materialism, so we're going to become materialistic. It also produces people who are boastful and arrogant. That's specifically through our words and our attitudes. Self-love also produces revilers. Now that word reviler, we don't really use that anymore. Uh, that basically means using nasty language to insult other people. That's alive and well today in our culture, right? Self-love infiltrates the family, too. When we become infatuated with ourselves, we teach that to our children. Did you know that? The self-love we have, we, we, we raise our kids up in it. We teach them to behave that way. And you know what the fruit of that is? He lists it right here. Children will be disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. We've all certainly seen this kind of attitude among children. And I've met with many families who are unwilling to reconcile their differences because of their pride and self-love. Self-love compels people to be slanders. That means to take delight in spreading rumors. We have a whole social media network dedicated to that. Right? Self-control is long gone because people act upon their own desires rather than thinking about other people. And consequently, our culture perpetuates self-loving people who are brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, and conceited. When we love ourselves, we become infatuated and in love with our own pleasure instead of in love with our God. Those are all the things that will happen in the last days. And those are all the things that are happening today. Are they not? All of those attributes are alive and well in this culture. And as Adam and Eve de demonstrated in the Garden of Eden, when we love ourselves over and above loving God, the consequence of that is death. And that's why we now live amidst a death culture. Because our culture has dedicated itself to those things. Now this begs the question, how do I live for Jesus in this culture? You know, think about it. We're raised in it. It's saturated our hearts and our minds. It's, it's, it's on the TV and on the internet and, and it's on social media. The death culture is a part of the fabric of society. So how do we not live in that way? I mean, if we're going to be a bright, burning light for the gospel, you know, if we're going to be set apart and holy and different, if we're really just going to be the opposite of everything that was written in that list, how do we do that in this culture? 
How do we ensure that we won't become like those people that Paul listed in that letter? To answer that question, you have to turn to John chapter 10. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. So that leads us to the second question of the sermon. Which shepherd are you following? Which shepherd are you following? And so we're going to look at a parable that Jesus taught to his disciples about a shepherd. And so bear with me. The first five verses, Jesus is going to give us this parable. And I'm going to kind of explain it in the context um, of the Israelites living in that age. And then we're going to apply that to our, our, our own lives. So John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So everything that Jesus just said in those five verses, the, the Israelites and his disciples, they would have understood that, right? They lived in a sheep herding culture, right? When he said this, there could have been sheep there and a shepherd. Like, they were everywhere. And so let me kind of explain that part of it to you in Jesus' parable about sheep and a shepherd. The relationship between a shepherd and his sheep was a personal one. The shepherd lived among the sheep. Have any of you ever been a part of moving a herd of cattle? Anybody in here? You know, generally you ride on a horse, right, Danny? Or maybe a four-wheeler if you're like, you know, modern. And um, I've watched my brother-in-law who owns a ranch do it, do, do it often. They, they generally will push the herd. They crack whips, they make noise, they even have dogs to move that herd forward. That's not how a shepherd moves sheep. Generally, a shepherd walks among his sheep, or he'll even walk in front of the sheep. The shepherd will call out to his sheep. He'll whistle and sing to the sheep. The sheep follow him because they know him. Believe it or not, the shepherd even smells like them. He's one of them. And so that's why they follow him. That's why they listen to him, because they trust him. Now the sheep, especially at night, they, the shepherd will put them in a fold, also called a sheepfold. It's a walled area in which the sheep sleep at night. The high walls keep the sheep in, and they keep predators out. So wolves or other predators, including thieves, cannot easily access the sheep to either eat them or take them away. The shepherd or his assistants, gen assistant generally would lay in the door of the sheepfold. And that makes sure no one gets out and nobody gets in. So if someone wanted to harm or steal the sheep, they'd have to scale the wall in order to get to them. They're not going to go through the door because they'll wake up the shepherd. So the thief would go around another way, an inappropriate way, not through the door. Verses 3 and 4 describe the relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. In the mornings, the shepherd enters the door of the sheepfold, and he leads the sheep out to pasture and to the watering hole so they can eat, so they can have the water that they need. Now, the text says three important things about the shepherd. The sheep hear his voice. 
when he talks to them and sings to them and whistles to them, they recognize him because they know his voice. And then if you look at it second, he knows each of them by name. He gives them names. Y'all have a, anybody have a pet at home? Right? You give names to those pets, and then they start to recognize that name, right? Shepherds do the same thing. They name their sheep, and they call their sheep by name. They know those sheep, just like you know your pets, the, the one with the black spot or, or the, the stripe or the spot on the tail. He knows each of them. He knows if they're there. He knows if they're missing. The shepherd also leads the sheep. He walks among them. He cares for them. And then verse 5 continues. It describes the way the sheep behave around strangers. When a stranger comes into the fold and tries to take them away, none of them will listen to that stranger. They don't know him. He doesn't smell like them. He doesn't talk in a way that they recognize. He doesn't sing the same tune or whistle like the shepherd does. And so that's the parable. Now, now Jesus is going to explain this to his, his disciples, right? And, and also to you and I. Look at verse 6. The figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Maybe you feel like that right now. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who, come, who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they may have life and have it abundantly. So next, Jesus takes time to explain this parable. And this parable has four important implications for you and I. As we ask, how do I live for Jesus in the midst of this death culture? And Jesus is going to say four things. First, Jesus is the only pathway to salvation. Jesus is the only pathway to the joy that God created us to experience both now and in eternity. Jesus is the only way. Number two, he will care for us and bring peace to our lives. Number three, the enemy Satan and those who lead us away from him are dangerous. And number four, Jesus alone provides abundant life. And so let me just take a few minutes and talk about each of those. First, verses 7 and 8, Jesus is the only pathway to salvation. Jesus describes the sheep gate. The sheep gate is the only opening to get in to the sheep fold. It's the only place the sheep can go in and out. Jesus is that door. Jesus is the sheep gate. He's the only one authorized by God the Father to mediate salvation for all people. There will be many false teachers, many messiahs, and even a prevailing culture that will lead God's people astray. This culture offers all kinds of promises to you and me, doesn't it? If you would just do this, you'll have what you're looking for. If you would just buy this, you're going you're gonna to find what you need. If you would just worship this instead of God, you're going to have everything your heart desired. And what Jesus is saying is all those are false messiahs offering false promises that lead to death. Jesus, our shepherd, is the only one that leads us to life. The second one, Jesus will care for us and bring peace to our lives. 
he continues using this beautiful symbolism in verse 9 and likens himself to the door in the sheepfold. He's the guardian who provides salvation. And not only that, sustains every sheep who passes through him. You know, sheep are dumb. Did you know that? I am sorry. I know the Bible calls all of us sheep, and there's a reason. Kind of is what it is. That's the word of God. That's what he says. Now, I'm not going to talk about our intellect. What I am going to talk about is our tendency, like sheep, to wander. We like to do that, don't we? God's got this beautiful, brightly lit path for us to walk upon, and the Word tells us all about it, right? And if that weren't enough, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit within us to, like, tell us, like, hey, you're kind of moving to the right, you know, like, square it up, get back on the path of righteousness, and you as believers, you all got it. You have the Holy Spirit, you have the Word of God, we got this beautiful congregation of wise Christians to help all of us together walk on the path. But the Bible says we, like sheep, have gone astray, right? We did that you know, in our sin before Christ. And now, as Jesus' sheep, as a part of God's flock, we do have a tendency to wander. We also can't care for ourselves, right? So we need a shepherd. And Jesus is that shepherd. And, and he's the one that leads us to salvation. And you know what? He cares for you. He loves you. He saves you. But what does he save us from? Well, he saves us from God's wrath for our sins, what we rightly earned in our life before we knew Jesus. Took, he took that penalty on himself. He, he bought our salvation through his blood and death on the cross. He saves us from eternity in hell. He saves us from purposelessness, hopelessness. He saves us from the consequences of living in our own self-loving death culture. Jesus was the shepherd who took us from death and darkness and into the marvelous life. And now we look at this culture and we can see with clear eyes what we came out of, right? Amen. That's what he saved us from. Just look back at your life before you knew Jesus and you'll remember. You'll remember what he took you out of and what he brought you to. He also provides for us. He provides peace in the midst of chaos. He provides joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. He provides hope for tomorrow when today isn't going well. He provides unconditional love for the hated. He provides a home for the homeless, a family for the orphan. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The enemy, Satan, and those who lead us away from Jesus are dangerous, according to verse 10. And let that sink in today. In Jesus' sheep illustration, the thief is any person who attempts to climb into the sheepfold, into the flock of God, that's you and I, and to lead us astray, to steal us away from our shepherd, now, who is that? Well, ultimately, that's the enemy, Satan, and anyone working to subvert God's will and mission on this earth. Satan does not want us to love God, 
nor does he want us to love other people as ourselves. Instead, the temptation, the ultimate temptation in your heart is to love yourself more than God and more than other people. And that's his mission. That's his desire in each of our lives. Unlike the enemy Satan and his death culture, Jesus came so that we might have abundant life. And so how do I live like Jesus in this death culture? Well, you've got to make a decision. And you have to take a stand. You've got to decide, who will I follow? Who will be my shepherd today? Will I follow this world and the enemy Satan? Will I blend into this culture and the self-loving death that's perpetuated generation after generation after generation? Or will I follow the great chief shepherd, Jesus? And when I take a stand, and, and when I stand for Jesus, am I ready to be that burning white light in the dark place? Because you know what God's plan, you know what God's promise is today? His promise is that he will continue to build his church. You know what that means? People will continue to be saved out of the darkness and brought into the marvelous light. And God's mission to do that is you and me. Sharing the bright light of the gospel into the darkened hearts of a lost world. So I want to invite you to stand with me now, please. And we're going to have a time of invitation. It's an opportunity for us to respond to whatever God is doing in your heart. Maybe today you need to be saved. Maybe you've not been following Jesus and, and come down here. I want to pray with you. I want to talk to you about how you can do that or maybe you just need to make a decision. I, I'm, I've been living like the world. I've, I've been living in this dark culture and, and I don't want to do that anymore. I want to live for Christ. I've deviated off the path of righteousness and I want to make things right with God today. Or maybe you just need to come and pray and leave a burden at the altar. Whatever God's laid on your heart, I want to invite you to be a part of that by taking a step of faith coming forward today. Would y'all pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. You are a good, good God. You are a great God. And you give us hope and joy and peace in this world. And so we come to you today, Lord God, and just ask you to help us to respond to whatever decision you've called us to make today. Help us to respond by faith through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Free heart.
Silencio. 